Um, all right, so we are continuing our series um, where John is going through Matthew on Sundays, and then I'm coming back behind him, and we're going to look more closely at Matthew's use of the Old Testament. So how is Matthew using his Bible to communicate who Jesus is? Even that he's using the Old Testament to communicate who Jesus is is noteworthy. So the first time we, we came together on this, um, we talked about Matthew 1.1, Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and we saw that he was the long-promised Davidic son who brings the Abrahamic promises to fruition, or to say it in reference to the divine covenants related to David and Abraham, is Jesus is the long-promised eternal king who is bringing the nations into God's presence for blessing. All that we saw was packed into Matthew 1.1, the first verse of the New Testament. We noted that this is particularly important to Matthew and that he actually bookends his book with these realities. We saw that the last thing that, Jesus, or that Matthew communicates about Jesus is the Great Commission, or better, the final command of King Jesus, where we see him announce his everlasting, all-encompassing authority, and then he sends his disciples to go gather up the nations into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these realities of Jesus' Davidic kingship and his being the means by which the promise to Abraham that all the nations, all the families of the earth would come into God's presence for blessing, we see that this is a, a vital uh, I, to Jesus' identity for Matthew. Then we got back together a couple weeks ago and we surveyed the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 2 through 17. And we saw that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, crafted Jesus' family history for theological purposes. It's not mere history. He's doing something theological. He's telling us about God. He arranged the genealogy into three sets of 14. From Abraham to David, the king, from David, king, David the king to the Babylonian exile, from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. We noted how this is Matthew's way to hammer home the reality that Jesus is the king promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. And by appealing to these key moments in Israel's history, he also is announcing that Jesus is the means by which the exile is ending. So you might naturally think, now we'll go to the birth narrative today, um, because the next thing that follows is the birth narrative that we're very familiar with um, because of all the goings-on with Christmas and Advent, um, but I'm going to save those. I'm going to jump actually to the end of the birth narrative, the very end of the birth narrative, and we'll loop back around to the birth narrative in November and December, seems fitting. So Matthew 2.23 is where we are today. It's pretty simple. I just read it. Pretty simple and straightforward. Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus out of the area to get away from a tyrannical king who wanted to kill Jesus because he felt threatened. Upon return, Joseph was directed by an angel to a little town called Nazareth up in the Galilee region. Here, Matthew says, and he came and lived in a town called Nazareth in order that what was said by the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Well, there you go. Sermon over. Easy. He's a Nazarene. 
He's going to live in Nazareth. The prophet said so. Another prophecy box checked. Done. Well, let me, I guess let me read the, I should at least read the passages where the prophets say that Jesus will be a Nazarene from Nazareth. Um, but before I get there, I think we should note that Matthew is not just checking boxes for prophecy fulfillment. We've seen so far that he's not playing around. There are no little, little insignificant fun facts about Jesus in Matthew's account. Everything he does and says is highly calculated. And he's not afraid to sharpen the point to make his, this theological reality pierce a little deeper. Here's what Matthew knows and is expecting us to know. There are zero prophecies about Jesus being from Nazareth in the Old Testament. In fact, the last prophet spoke 400 years before Jesus was born. The town of Nazareth wasn't even a town in the Old Testament. You will look in vain for Nazareth in the Old Testament. The town of Nazareth was only about 150 years old when Jesus was born. So, hopefully I've got your attention here. What the heck is Matthew doing? Right? What is going on? Matthew said that multiple prophets said that Jesus would be a Nazarene. Hopefully I'll show you today that Matthew's point, he's not mistaken, Matthew's point is theologically rich and wonderful. And yet, we shall see that it is also another way, another way that Matthew is hammering home this idea that Jesus is the long-awaited promised son of David who rules as king forever and ever. All right, so what is Matthew doing? All right, here's what Matthew's doing. He's doing a word play. Remember that Matthew's first readers would have been familiar with Hebrew and Greek. We are not. So we have to do some work that they didn't have to do. But nevertheless, we have to do it. So here goes. The name Nazareth, Nazareth in the Greek, and it, it sounds like the Hebrew word for branch in Hebrew, not ser. But you're probably wondering, maybe, what in the world does branch have to do with anything? Nazer, sounding like Nazareth. Let me read from you Isaiah 11, one of the prophets that I think Matthew is referring to. And listen to the fullness of this. Listen to the, how this progresses and where it goes, and where it starts, how it progresses and where it goes. Ten verses in Matthew 11, 1 through 10. And a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse and a branch, not there, from its roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The branch is a him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his breath is in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall judge not by eyesight. He shall, not, he shall rebuke not by what his ears hear. But he shall judge the poor with the righteous. And he shall decide for the needy of the earth with rectitude. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and he shall kill the wicked with the, with the breath of his lips. And, the, and righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And the wolf shall stay with the lamb, and a leopard shall lie down with a kid, and a calf and a lion and a fatling together as, small, as a small boy leads them. And a cow and a bear shall graze, their young shall, die, shall lie together, and a lion shall eat straw like the cattle, and an infant shall play over the serpent's hole, and a toddler shall put his hand on a viper's hole, and they will not injure, and they will not destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. And this shall happen on, the, on that day. The nations will inquire of the root of Jesse, which shall be standing as a signal to the peoples, and his resting place shall be glorious. Interesting about this coming branch that Isaiah is talking about. The word branch is the Hebrew word natser. When God appointed David to rule over his people, he told David that he would have a son that would rule forever and ever. But exactly who is this forever king? Solomon? He died. Josiah? He died. Son after son came through the generations. You can read about them in the book of Kings and Chronicles. Most of them were bad kings that actually led God's people away from God. In an act of judgment on these kings and his people, God sent them into exile and cut off the Davidic kingly line. You can see this is a big deal. What about the forever king? God's anointed one who will rule on David's throne forever and ever. The exile of God's people was catastrophic. God's presence left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. And his people left the promised land. Was it all over? This whole project to restore all humanity through the offspring of Abraham, namely a singular eternal king from the line of David, was it over? This is the context that the prophets are speaking into. The hope of the world was resting on a Davidic king. And now the Davidic line has been cut down because the Davidic line led the people into rebellion against God. And the people have been kicked out of the land. But the prophets regularly speak of a new shoot, a new branch that will come up from that old dead stump. In this new branch lies the hope of the whole world. Notice in Isaiah 11, I just read the nations in, in verse 10. The nations will inquire of the root of Jesse, which shall be standing as a signal to the peoples. God is a God of resurrection and new life. And the prophets claimed that one day he would resurrect the Davidic line. 
And through that son of David, God would make all things new. Listen to the prophets here. Listen to Jeremiah. Look, and this is Jeremiah 23. Look, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king. He will achieve success and he will do justice and righteousness in the land. Ten chapters later, Jeremiah says, In those days and in that time, I will make a branch of righteousness sprout for David. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. This branch, this natser, it's starting to become um, equivalent to the, our hope, the prophetic hope for the Jewish people was that a son of David was coming. Even though they knew good and well, the line was gone. In Zechariah 3 and 6, the prophet speaks of a branch that will come and rule and build the temple, a new temple for Yahweh. The apostle Paul, he quotes Isaiah to show that Jesus, the Davidic forever king, will even be a hope to the Gentiles. Here he says in Romans 15, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even the one who rises to rule over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will put their hope. I mentioned this to you a couple Sundays ago, that the last thing that Jesus says about himself, the last thing the Bible says about Jesus, the last sentences of the Bible. What do you think Jesus, what do you think the message of Jesus is? Here it is, the last thing I'm going to say about myself. He says this in 22.16, Revelation 22.16. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Here it is. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus' Davidic kingship is the first thing you learn about in the New Testament, the first sentence of the New Testament. And it's the last thing that you hear about in Matthew's gospel, and it's the last thing you hear about in the whole, in the whole New Testament itself. Jesus' kingship, his, that he is the Davidic branch, the Natser, means he's the hope of the world. And this is what the prophets said would come, and that he would make all things new. The son of David, where the lion and the lamb would lay down together, where the toddler would stick his hand in a viper hole, no big deal. This, that language from Isaiah is all darkness, all death, all trouble is, is exiled out of this existence by this branch, the Nazare. Matthew cannot stress enough that we come to grips with this wonderful reality tells us in the first sentence. He tells us in the genealogy. He's going to tell us again next time we get together, believe it or not. And he's telling us here at the very end of this birth narrative. But he's doing it in a strange way. He's doing it through a word play. So my parents are here visiting, and they live in a small town called Barnwell, South Carolina, if you know it. I feel like you're like a unique group if you know Barnwell. Everybody gets a smile on their face like, oh, yeah, I know Barnwell. It's small. And one way to get there from my house in Charleston is to drive through Branchville, 
South Carolina. There's another small town. Branchville is a small, off-the-beaten-path rural town in South Carolina, not too unlike Nazareth, a small, off-the-beaten-path town in Galilee. Here's what's happening. Matthew is seeing Jesus' identity, his Davidic kingship, all over Jesus' life. Jesus was raised in the Branchville, the Nazareth of his day. And Matthew couldn't help but say, of course. The root of Jesse, the son of David, was raised in Branchville. Of course. Of course. Why? How could you not see that? He's, he lives in a town called Branchtown, Branchville. The branch is coming. The branch that's coming up from the, from the stump of Jesse, the descendant of David. So by the power of the Spirit, Matthew has eyes to see the rich providence of God surrounding Jesus' life. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and raised in a town that triggered his mind to contemplate the multiple prophecies about the coming branch. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, Matthew concludes his telling of the story of Jesus' birth just as he began it in 1-1. By emphasizing Jesus as Messiah, son of David, the hope of Israel's restoration. And I would add, ultimately, the hope of humanity's restoration. So hopefully you're starting to notice that the kingship of Jesus is a major deal for Matthew. And once you see it, you'll notice it everywhere in the New Testament. I've mentioned it before that Christ is a royal title. It's not Jesus' last name. Lord is the word for master or ruler. It's not Jesus' nickname. We want to be biblical in how we think and speak, especially about Jesus. And the reality is, is that in our English Bibles and in our English liturgy, in the BCP and in our songs, um, sometimes this reality gets hidden behind the words Christ and Lord. Those words fail to, for us, they fail to carry that import of a king and a master. But nevertheless, we must be taught the reality behind the words. So that when we do our Bible reading, and when we do our liturgy, and when we sing our songs, we receive that full theological import. Consider Jesus' kingship and rule as we finish out the service when you hear the words Christ and Lord. Because you're going to hear them. You're going to say them. You're going to pray them. And you're going to sing them. But my, my goal here is that they would carry a little bit more theological weight, royal weight. Now, I understand we live in a society that might not readily, readily grasp uh, living under a monarch. And I know that some of us might be sensitive to the idea that the very foundation of our country was induced by this idea of getting out from under a king. But we cannot allow that to color how we conceive of and speak of Jesus. We want to allow Jesus to define kingship, not George. 
or Herod or Caesar. So let me encourage you to embrace Jesus as king. Let me encourage you to consider his kingship over heaven and earth and what it might look like for him to be your king and the king of your household. He reigns with absolute authority and unlike any other king ever, he is omnibenevolent. He is all good. There isn't even an ounce of darkness in him. He is not a tyrant. He does not levy unfair taxes or kill firstborn children because they're a threat to him. He is the hope of the world, the prophets say. The means by which we, Jew or Gentile, get access to God, the fount of life everlasting. The psalmist notes, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. King Jesus is not a tyrant. Obedience to this forever king leads to life, not death. Joy, not misery. Let us pledge allegiance to this saving, loving king forever. As we prepare ourselves to take communion, let us remember that we are being welcomed at the table of God because our king's royal blood was shed and because his royal body was broken. Surely, Jesus is a king like no other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness towards us. I pray that your spirit would fill us so that we could put King Jesus' reign and rule over our lives on display so that we would be like a city on a hill. I pray that you would work in us, swell up an allegiance that spills out in our kitchens, in our living rooms, in our workplaces, in the streets, in restaurants. Father, that we would be ambassadors, empowered by the Spirit, that we would be a people through which your kingdom would be constantly arriving into Polly's Island or wherever we may live. So I pray that you would do this for your glory, for your namesake, for our joy. We pray all of this in King Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.